Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Grams. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2186 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 40 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Today as we continue our series on the good news according to John the Apostle. If you remember last week, we explored the details of the use of a crucifixion as a means of capital punishment and how gruesome that crucifixion was. That crucifixion of the Messiah in a message that was titled, Death on a Cross. And today our scripture is John chapter 19, verses 38 through chapter 20, verse 10, and it's starting on page 1685 of your pew Bible. As we begin Thanksgiving week, I can't think of anything to be more thankful for than the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because our entire faith is built on that resurrection. So today we're going to look at a miraculous resurrection. Follow along as I read the scripture today, the burial of Jesus, starting in verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came back and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two, men of the, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance to the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus, Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Going on to chapter 20, the empty tomb. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one who Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciples outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still laying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to the place where they were staying. We have so much to be thankful for today. Every single breath that we take is a miracle from God. Did you know that we take approximately 23,000 breaths every single day? But when was the last time you thanked God for one of those breaths? The process of inhaling oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide is a complicated respiratory task that requires physiological precision and it's 
automatic to us. For most of us, we don't think about breathing very much. It just becomes automatic. And we tend to thank God for those things that take our breath away, which is fine. But when was the last time you thanked him for every other breath that you take? We need to thank God for each little miracle in our life. We should proclaim the resurrection of Christ with every breath that we take. Now, John described and defended the resurrection of Jesus against the world that wanted to deny it by his words that were inspired and preserved by the Holy Spirit, but they are still useful for us today, not only for the sake of correct theology, as we looked at last week, but for something even more fundamental. Last week, we read verse 35 of chapter 19. The man who saw it, it was John, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. As we look at verse 38, the ancient people were not insulated by death as we are in a modern 21st century society. Certainly the men who earned their living by putting people to death, they knew when their task was complete. They had no doubt. And unlike today, the people that day had to prepare their own loved ones' bodies for burial. We didn't ship them off to an undertaker to handle that. They took care of the bodies themselves. As a result, by age 30, almost everyone had seen dozens of corpses close up and personal. Their lifespans weren't nearly as long as ours is today. Now, the unconscious body might fool us today, but they didn't, the people of Jesus' day. They knew when someone was dead. After the soldier spear had confirmed his death, we read last week, two, two of Jesus' secret disciples they were members of that Sanhedrin that convicted Jesus to death. They came and requested permission to take their friend's body. They were secret disciples. Unusually, or usually the Roman soldier or the Roman court or the law would just dispose of those criminals in a common grave where they put everyone and it was unmarked. That's where they put everyone that was an enemy of the state. They didn't worry about preparing him for burial. They just tossed him in a cave. Still, Pilate probably wanted to avoid any further conflict of offending the Jews even more than he had already had. And according to Philo of Alexandria, extending his courtesy on giving the body to their family was not uncommon. It was fairly commonplace in that day. And Philo wrote, I have known instances before, before now where men had been crucified when this festival and holiday was at hand. Being taken down, they were given to their relations and received the honors of the sepulcher and to enjoy such, such observances as are due to the dead. For it used to be considered that even the dead ought to derive some enjoyment from this natal festival of the good emperor and also that sacred character of the festival ought to be regarded. So we move on to verses 39 through 42. Joseph and Nicodemus they waited for the soldiers to lower that body of Jesus down from the cross. They came secret, as secret disciples, yet members of that Sanhedrin. Then they would have to take, if you remember last week, the crucifixion, the arms were stretched above in a V-shaped form as they hung below. As they lowered the body off the grave, rigor mortis would have been setting in already. His arms would have been stiff. So Joseph and, and Nicodemus had to massage those muscles 
to gradually work those arms down to loosen up those tendons and joints and, of the bones and get them to the point where they're either by their side or maybe crossed over their bodies. They had to massage the dead Jesus in order to put him in a place where they could then wrap him. After pulling his arms down out of that V position, they washed the body and anointed him with oil before wrapping a single linen cloth around the body. It was soaked with spices and resin. And you think of resin as sort of the varnish. You put varnish on floors and it makes it hard. It did the same as they soaked it in spices and resin. Once it dried, it would become a hard shell around the body. They wrapped the body from head to toe in accordance to those Jewish burial customs. Under their Jesus' chin, more than likely, they wrapped it around like this to keep his mouth closed because once the rigor mortis relaxed those muscles, they didn't want the mouth hanging open before they wrapped him. So they wrapped him completely from head to toe. Verse 40 says, this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. It referred to John. It required the men to wrap the body of Jesus in those strips soaked with spice and resin or varnish. John describes 75 pounds of Aramaic resins and spices to, out, to counteract. And the reason they did that is because bodies would quickly decompose in that era, the weather they had. And this helped to offset that stink of a decomposing body. They were to place the body in a burial cave, hewn from a limestone hill. After the body de decomposed itself, and if you look at your bulletin insert, on the side it says, the burial of Christ. We see the verses 38 and 39 where Joseph and Nicodemus were carrying Jesus' body to that tomb. After the body decomposed, it was only temporary. Generally, the family then would go in and take the bones of that decomposed body after it was completely decomposed and the bones were dry laying there. They would gather those bones up and put in what was called an ossuary or a bone box. On the bottom of that page, on the left-hand side, is just a common bone box made out of stone. And the family members would gather the bones and put them in that ossuary. On the right-hand side is a more elaborate one, similar to our gravestones today in our graveyards. But they had to clear that out because the price of a burial cave was very expensive. So they had to clear out the bones of passed on loved ones and put them in their bone box so they'd have room for other relatives that would then pass away. So it was not uncommon, any more uncommon than if we have a loved one cremated and have their ashes in a vase sitting in our house. It'd be similar to that. But they were in a hurry that night, that late afternoon, because the sun was soon setting and the burial party had to act quickly. The holy day began at sunset, that Passover, that celebration that came once a year. In Deuteronomy, though, in chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, they required the body of someone who had been executed to be buried before sundown that very same day. Therefore, they undoubtedly only applied one layer of burial cloth to Jesus' body as they wrapped him. In haste, they were coming up against sunset, and they had to be back in their homes at sunset, celebrating the Passover. So they wrapped Jesus up 
quickly with one layer of, of, of cloth, or so it's been surmised. They were planning on coming back the day after pa Passover, the day after Sabbath, and finishing the job. That's when the ladies came early on Sunday morning to finish wrapping Jesus in those burial cloths. Once the body was inside, though, the men had to roll that massive stone over the entrance. And we know by the other Gospels that they sealed the stone so no one would go in it. And they did this so that grave robbers wouldn't come and steal the bodies or any wild animals would get in and destroy the bodies. And thirdly, they didn't want any of the smell of decomposition of the decomposing body to waft out into the garden. So we move on to chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. John assumed that the readers were very familiar with the other synoptic gospels. John has its own narrative, as he does throughout his narrative. He was not part of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He wrote his own narrative some 60 years later after this happened. But they assumed his readers were familiar with those other gospels, Matthew 28 and Mark 16, Luke 24. So his purpose in his narrative was to bring a little bit different story today, different from the other gospels. He combined the accounts of several women coming to the grave that morning, and one of them was Mary Magdalene. She had come to the garden to help to finish that funeral process, that burial process. They arrived separately, probably, but they pre-planned to arrive at a similar time. But upon discovering the empty tomb, the women split up. Matthew and Mark and Luke tell us what happened with the other women, especially in Luke chapter 24. But at the same time, John records the experience of Mary Magdalene. While the other women moved in for a closer look, and a couple angels appeared to them, Mary immediately ran to where the disciples were hidden to tell them the body was gone. In all of Jesus' teaching, we think, how could they not understand that we have 20-20 hindsight? So we must not be too hard on Mary that morning. Imagine that we just buried a loved one or a family member. We went to the grave a couple days later to lay flowers on the grave. And as we approached the grave, we noticed there was a pile of dirt beside the grave. And the top of the coffin was laying out. And we looked into the coffin, and there was no body. What were we to assume? That the body was exhumed for some reason, and that's what Mary Magdalene thought. As we go on to the follow-up on this, after our Christmas break of messages, we'll see that Mary Magdalene came back with the Peter and John and had an encounter with the Lord. And we'll see that when we return to this, this series. And while Jesus had predicted his resurrection, his followers soon saw things only through their natural eyes. They didn't understand Jesus' body missing. And that's because they didn't have the supernatural insight of the Holy Spirit that indwells each of us, because that didn't come until 50 days later, when the Holy Spirit indwelled them and opened their minds, and they could finally see why the resurrection was so important, while our very Faith is dependent on this resurrection. As we move on to verses 3 through 8, the Greek language here has six verbs that can be translated into the words to see. 
but they each have a certain nuances of their own. For example, John chapter 20, verses 5 through 8, John uses three of those different nuances to see. The first one is blepo. It means to look in verse 5. And then theorio, he saw in verse 6. And then eidon, he saw in verse 8. It's described different kinds of scene of John and Peter's experience. Upon hearing Mary's report, John and Peter raced to the tomb. They wanted to investigate with what Mary had said was true. John arrived first. He stopped at the cave opening. He looked into it. He observed without necessarily understanding. That's that first one, Blepo, in verse 5. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he couldn't comprehend what had happened. Peter arrived moments later to push his way in, as Peter so brashly did so many times, into the burial cave we went running unto, but then his scene was different. He examined for the purpose of investigation the theorio, that curious condition of the burial wrappings. Part of the linens were laying in one place, the head wrapping was folded and laying in another place. Now, John's general sense of description here is that resin had hardened, and where his body was was actually a cocoon of wrappings laying there, but no body in it. It was an empty cocoon that had previously wrapped the Lord's body. Now, someone stealing the body would have taken everything, including the wrappings, or if they did unwrap the linens, they would have tossed them aside. Furthermore, the cloth used to tie Jesus' jaw shut was laying off to the side, folded neatly by itself. If this was a hoax, it was certainly a very elaborate one. Why would they go to such lengths? Finally, John entered the tomb after Peter. At the point, he's that third word for he saw, which is eidon, is to perceive with understanding. He believed. He finally got it. We would say it clicked with him finally. And he put it all together, realizing that Jesus had to rise from the dead in order for his kingdom to be complete. So we move on to verses 9 and 10 of chapter 20. John explains the reason for the disciples' slowness for comprehending the full meaning of what they saw. And he reflected back to what he wrote in John chapter 2, verse 22, several months ago in our messages. And he wrote, after he was raised from the dead... His disciples remember he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. John wrote this earlier in his narrative. However, he did not understand fully at that point the necessity of the resurrection, and that understanding came at Pentecost. Certainly, prophecy alluded them, or alluded to Jesus rising from the dead in Psalm chapter 16 and Hosea chapter 6. However, they had a hard time logically putting it all together. Now, by the first century, Jewish scholars struggled to understand how a Messiah could suffer and die for the sake of his nation, which was prophesied, and yet become a king and rule and reign forever. How can this happen? How can one individual fulfill both of those roles? Because they couldn't comprehend it. And it led to a belief, well, maybe there's two messiahs, two individuals, one who would sacrifice his life, and then another who would replace him to reign in his place. And that's how they worked it out in their own minds. The seemingly conflicting prophecies remained a puzzle until 
Finally, John recognized that the bodily miraculous resurrection of the Messiah could, could, could fulfill both of those roles. Yes, he could die in the place of our sin, but then he can rule and to reign because he was no longer dead. He rose again. The Messiah, the resurrection, that miraculous resurrection resolved everything in more ways than one. So what's our application of this passage for us today? Now, earlier in the ministry of the temple, Jesus challenged the religious leaders, those government leaders, on the issue of freedom. And the application is the politics of Christ's resurrection. They seem to be surprisingly out of touch, and I mentioned this as we went through chapter 8, of the current political situations because they boasted, but we are descendants of Abraham, they said. We have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean you will set us free? The nation had been enslaved in Babylon and by the Assyrians and now under the Roman rule. It's ironic, considering their subservience at that point in time with Rome. Nevertheless, the claim prompted Jesus to speak the reality of their political and spiritual bondage. Gentiles, expositors, those that came afterwards usually interpreted Jesus' meaning on freedom exclusively from a spiritual standpoint, that we're free spiritually. But he was talking to them as a Jewish nation. The Messiah was the king of the Jews. So he was also to reign politically, but not at that point. The temple's officials wanted political freedom, and they thought they had achieved it by maintaining this peaceful relationship with Rome, such as Rome allowed them to worship in peace, but they were controlled by Rome. They didn't completely see it. They rationalized it in their mind. Jesus clarified the issue, saying, because you are slaves to sin, you lack political freedom also. Then he boldly declared that, that he was their king. When he said, so if the sun sets you free, you are truly free, in verse 36 of chapter 8. This was the invitation for them to accept him as the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. The promised freedom would be both spiritual and political. And it's not only for Israel. It's for everyone who puts their trust in Christ. Living in Christ, we do enjoy both spiritual and political freedom. If we lived in a country where we had no religious freedom, we would still be free. If our country ever gets to the point where they, they try to squash our religious freedom, we will still be free. No one can take that freedom away from us. As you look at your bulletin insert on the other side, now for those of you who have four, five, and six and two different, the two groupings, I copied it from one side to the other, didn't catch it. It should, it should be one, two, three on both sides, so. Just leaves me back to my humanity. And I didn't notice it until I was just reviewing this morning. Oh, this says four, five, and six. <laughs> I've been going over it several times this week. But let me suggest three reasons why the resurrection is of an immense importance. And I mean immense importance not only back then, but even today. Why is the resurrection so important for us today? Well, the first three is, the first one is, the resurrection of Jesus assures us of God's forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of God's best gifts to us. I remember reading of a particular psychiatrist who said, if I could, dis I could dismiss half of my patients tomorrow, if they could be assured of their own forgiveness. 
The truth is all of us have a skeleton or two in our dark cupboards of, uh, in our lives. Something that we've done or said or thought of which is not one of our best moments. And we would, when we are in tune with God, we will be profoundly ashamed of those times. But it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're, re, that we're forgiven. Without that resurrection, we would not have forgiveness. Secondly, the, the resurrection of Jesus assures us of God's power. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need more than just forgiveness from the past. I need strength and power for today. I need power in the present moment to help me to overcome those things that I struggle with. Becoming a Christian is nothing less than resurrection from our spiritual bondage, our spiritual death into an entirely new life. But how do we then live our life free on a daily basis? That's through the power of God that he gives us through that resurrection. In a word, the same God of supernatural power that raised Jesus from the physical death raises up from spiritual death. That same power that allowed Christ to rise, to change from a mortal body into his resurrection body is the same power that we have on a daily basis. Yes, one day in the future we will have that resurrection body also, but for today it's the power to live according to his precepts. And third, um, thirdly, the resurrection assures us of God's ultimate triumph at the end of history. One of the significant differences between different religions of the world, different ideologies of the world, as well as concern for our future, is that most other religions don't have the Christian hope. That hope of a resurrection ourselves, to be given that resurrection body. The Christian hope is that all of creation, that is the moment, at the moment groaning under the bondage of decay and death as each of our bodies are, each of our spirits are, will be liberated into the freedom of children of God. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. At some point, that birth will happen and we will be freed from our mortal bodies. Belief in a living Christ is crucial. It is a crucial matter with broad ramifications, and it has a profound impact on our world. The implications of resurrections aren't limited to history or philosophy. There's also three principles that are linked through the resurrection, also listed in your bulletin. To deny the resurrection, you have to deny all of Scripture. Deny, to deny scripture, you have to deny the existence of God. And to deny the existence of God, you have to deny the reality of truth and meaning. If nothing exists beyond our short sojourn on this world today, in this meaningless universe, then we shouldn't waste our energies on the delusions of morality or love or purpose or human worth. But if you think about it, even the people who reject the resurrection understand this, if only at a subconscious level. As each culture just farther and farther from the living Christ, therefore from that resurrection of Christ, societies ex will experience moral decline. We've seen it over and over throughout the ages. Love gives way to general disregard for others in public. 
Public policies fail to protect those who cannot protect themselves, such as the aged, the terminally ill, or those who are unborn. Violent acts of hopelessness, killing sprees that we see all too often, and suicide, which we hear of way too often, they become commonplace in a society who has drifted away from that resurrection of our Lord. Justice gives ways to whims of dictators. Eventually, all we hold dear as civilized people vanishes without the resurrection, leaving only anarchy and tyranny to fill a void. And as Benjamin Franklin wrote in a letter on April 17, 1787, he said, let me add that only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. Therefore, the question of Christ's resurrection is supremely practical one. Whoever does not submit to the risen Christ has really no, no master other than themselves. And according to Jesus, that's no freedom at all, as history has proven over and over again. Now, I'm concerned a bit for our nation today, but I'm concerned for every nation that has cast off Christ. But take heart. That is not our final destiny. Jesus' resurrection is just the beginning of God's new project, which is his kingdom. His purpose is not to snatch people away out of the world, but to colonize the earth with those who are, have the life of heaven embedded within them. That is why it's vital, we as citizens of God's kingdom, that we're being about building God's kingdom not our own kingdoms to build ourselves up, and certainly not supporting the empires of the world. It's to build up God's kingdom, and that's our occupation, every one of us. So now more than ever, Christians must proclaim that good news. And what is that good news? It's in our bulletin insert on that picture. He is risen. That's the good news that we have today. The resurrection of Jesus is up to the minute and relevant today as it was when Jesus first rose from the dead. It assures us of God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ if we put our trust in him. It assures us of the resurrection power that we can call upon in order to live life according to God's precepts every day. And it assures us of God's ultimate triumph at the end of the world when we will gain a resurrection body in the last day where we're taken up and given that resurrection body. And then we're to dwell and remain as heaven comes to earth and forms a global Eden, mirroring the original Garden of Eden. We will have our resurrected bodies. We ought to be able to echo the words of the Apostle Peter as he wrote later, long after this particular experience in his first letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. All praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectations and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change or decay. The promise is certainly something we can be thankful for this Thanksgiving, this season of celebration, giving thanks back to God. 
for his outpouring the cornucopia of blessings on us. And as we conclude, let me read the Psalm of Thanksgiving, Psalm 100. Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Acknowledge the Lord is God. He has made us and we are his. We are the, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Entering his, into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever, and his faithfulness continues to each generation. Let's not forget to thank him for every breath that we take. So we breathe in his spirit and breathe out thanksgiving to God. Now, we actually have three more messages in the book of John. We want to take a break here during Advent season. And then we'll pick it back up with Mary Magdalene coming back to the tomb and meeting her Lord there at the tomb. We'll do that when we return in January. But before that, we want to celebrate the most special season, the beginning of God's kingdom when Christ came to earth to be born of a babe. And we're going to have five messages during this Advent season that will focus on characters of Christmas. Next week, we'll start with Joseph, the unsung hero of Christmas. So please read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do give you thanks. We thank you for this, this season of celebration of Thanksgiving to so just stop Remember what you provided for us. We thank you for the resurrection that provided us with eternal life because if Christ had not risen, neither would we. We thank you for the salvation we have through that resurrection of Jesus Christ. We fellowship together after the service. Let it be a blessed one of thanksgiving to you. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.